You are listening to the podcast of Providence Church in Austin, Texas. We hope this message raises your affections for Jesus and helps you live out the gospel in everyday life. A couple weeks ago, we finished our series in Romans. We spent 20 plus weeks working through the book of Romans. A couple weeks from now, we will begin a series in the book of Exodus. And that's kind of our norm, as we like to walk through a book at a time to give you a sense of what the author is saying in that particular message and how it connects to the whole of Scripture, the storyline of the Bible. But in between Romans and Exodus, we're taking a few weeks just to talk about the DNA of our church. Uh, When I say DNA, we just mean the core beliefs and practices that define us, that shape our vision, that govern the way that we live our lives, or at least the way that we want to live our lives. And the reason it's important to talk about DNA is because of our tendency to drift. I think we all know what it's like to have, like, on paper, some, like, values and ways that we want to live our life, and then to wake up one day or suddenly realize, hmm, my actual life is not a whole lot like what I have in my life on paper. And somehow you just got away from it, and we go through cycles of, like, oh, yeah, yeah, okay, I got to get back to this, recommit, and then we drift again. It's really normal to just what it means to be human. Uh, in our own family, we've realized some drift lately. Uh, we, uh, you know, we were just got stuck in some ruts and some patterns that weren't really what we wanted. And so we realized, like, man, we, uh, we don't really play games as a family that much anymore. Uh, I had realized that I'd stopped praying consistently with my kids at night. You know, they're, they're getting older and I'm getting older, which means I go to bed before them now sometimes. And it's like, ah, just, you know, good night. Uh, you know, and you just do little things like that incrementally, slowly, over time, and suddenly you wake up and you go, wait, this isn't the kind of family we want to have. And so we took our kids out to dinner last, uh, last week, I think last Sunday night, and sat down with them and said, look, our family's drifted. It's our fault. It's your fault. It's everybody's fault. Doesn't matter whose fault it is. What we need to do is reset. And I asked them, what are you doing the computer? It won't work right. What's the first thing you should always try? And they're old enough to know, you just restart it. That usually works. It's like, yeah, that's what we're going to do. We're going to try to restart and try to like, get back to some of the patterns and rhythms that, for us, live out what kind of family we want to be. Okay, you, you know what I'm talking about, drift? Well, the same thing happens in churches. It happens all the time. In Ephesians 4, Paul is writing to that church, and, and there's a paragraph where he's talking about his desire for the church to grow up, to become mature in Christ. And he uses this imagery of, of being tossed about like children, in, in the water, in the waves, by every sort of false doctrine and deceitful scheming and lies. And the, the image is one of just sort of like in the ocean, you're getting tossed about, and all of a sudden you're way down the coast and you don't even know it. And what it means to be mature as a church is to be anchored in something. And in our case, the gospel of Jesus, so that we can't drift like that. Uh, it happens in all kinds of churches. You look in Acts 6, and it happens for all kinds of reasons. In Acts 6, there's good things. So we don't drift just because of bad things. Good things cause drift. In Acts 6, the church is growing. And with growth, there's opportunities and there's more needs. And it's easy in a growing church, as more needs arise, to start kind of putting out fires. And, and the needs are legitimate, but what happens in a church is the needs become the center. And so the whole church becomes about meeting these needs, and we drift from our primary calling. And in Acts 6, they, they avoid the drift because the, the apostles get the disciples together and they say, hey, these are legitimate needs. The Hellenistic widows are not being tended to, are not being cared for. But we shouldn't do that because we have a primary calling to preach the Word of God. And so they appoint men to, and women to be deacons to take care of those needs. 
They're trying to avoid drift by letting good things become central. In Revelation, you get these seven letters to these seven churches from Jesus. And uh, a letter from Jesus is both really, really good and also kind of scary. And in these letters, you, you get this sense how these churches have drifted. In the letter to Ephesus, he tells them, look, I know your good works. I know that you are patiently enduring. And then the scary part comes. He says, yeah, but I have this one thing against you. He says, the one thing I have against you is that you've left your first love. You've abandoned the love that you had at first. And he says, repent, get back to the works that you did at first, the works that were motivated and driven by love and not just duty. The church in Laodicea, he says, you guys are like not hot or cold, you're just lukewarm. And what he means by that is that you're really comfortable. He says, you say to yourselves, we're rich, times are good, housing market's going up. And if you own a house, that's good news. If you're trying to buy a house, it's terrible news. But they're all in a good situation. They're prospering. And you know what that leads them to? Comfort. And they fall into this trap of thinking that they've got it, that they're okay. And they sort of drift from their deep need of God. And Jesus says, look, you need to buy gold from me refined by fire. You need to get water from me. In other words, he's saying, you need to look to me for security and for comfort and for joy. And he calls them to repent. Get back to where you were at first. There are lots of ways to drift, and every church has a tendency to drift. Now, the challenge with drift is it happens slowly. It's like you don't notice your kids getting taller because you just see them every day, but your family comes into town like, man, you've gotten so much taller. That's how drift happens. It just happens slowly. Usually what has to happen is something dramatic occurs in your life some consequence, some intersection of bad circumstances makes you look up from your routines and ruts and realize like, whoa, how did I get here? And maybe some of you are there now. As a church, we're trying to look ahead, trying to be a little more intentional and just say, look, this series is an intentional way for us to say, let's look up. Let's, let's see where we are personally, and let's see where we are as a church. Now, when you look up, you have to have some sort of reference point, right? You, you have to know what you're measuring yourself against to see if you've drifted or how far you've drifted. And again, for us, the reference point is the gospel. In a nutshell, it's the good news that God saves sinners through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. That message is core, is central to everything that we believe and do. Sometimes we think of that message as being just about me and God, like just this vertical aspect of being made right with God. It is absolutely that. But it is much more comprehensive than that. Uh, the gospel is a message about how God is reconciling us to himself, yes, but also how he is reconciling us one to another. And beyond that, that he is giving us a ministry of reconciliation so that we might engage the world with the good news about Jesus. It's important to hold all three of these aspects together. A lot of times the reason a church drifts is because they somehow make one particular aspect of the gospel to be the whole, and that's a kind of drift. But we want to hold these together, and that's the reason we've given you this little diagram in your liturgy. Look at uh, page four in your liturgy, and you'll see these three circles. This is how we're trying to hold all these things together that the gospel is about me and God and us and God and the world and God. 
you'll see at the top there, gospel content. This is just what it sounds like. It's the content of the gospel. It's the message about what God has done in sending his son to the world to live and die in our place and to be raised from the dead. In relation to the content of the gospel, we become learners or disciples. We're in pursuit of firsthand knowledge of Jesus. And then also there's gospel community. Uh, Community exposes our need for Jesus and points us to him as our only hope for renewal. Community is the context for our discipleship. And so I'm learning the gospel in discipleship to Jesus, but the context or the laboratory in which that happens is the relationships that I have around me. And then you'll see the third circle is gospel cause. As we are learning to love one another as God has loved us, which is what happens in community, Jesus says in John 17 that as that happens, the world takes note. The world sees, and there's something about that witness of the church and how their love for one another that leads people to believe that Jesus is real and that he's really the Son of God, gospel cause. Now, there's a lot you could say about all of those, but that gives you a summary of how we see these things working together. And you see this all over the Scriptures. Uh, You go to Acts 2, which is a very famous passage about the early church. And what does it say there? Well, it says the early church was devoted. They were gathered together. They're devoted to the apostles' teaching, the content of the gospel. And they were gathering together daily in the temple, this communal gathering, and they were sharing everything they had. They were taking care of each other like a family takes care of each other, breaking meals together, praying together. It's community. And as that was happening, verse 45 in Acts 2 says that daily they were being added to their number those who were being saved mission, cause. These dynamics are woven together everywhere we see the people of God throughout the Scriptures. It's the kind of church that we want. It's the kind of people I think that you want to be, and so how do we get there? That's the question for today. Well, last week we looked at a text in John 1. Uh, We said that part of what it means to reconnect to our DNA, what would be helpful is to sort of connect with the early DNA of Jesus' ministry, to go to the very beginning so we can kind of cut through all the noise and just see what kind of culture and environment was he creating with his disciples early on. We began by seeing that to to get to the place of gospel-centered community, we've got to recapture the importance and the centrality of God's Word. Like, we have to read it. And not just read it, but bring our lives under it in submission. And as we read it and submit to it, we have to anticipate the very presence of God in His Word. That's what it means to get after a gospel-centered community. But it's more than that. See, Jesus' invitation was, yes, come and see, come and learn, come and read, come and be with me, come and be changed by me, but it's not just come and see. As we go back to this same text today, we're going to see also it's come and be seen. We did a nine-week study on gospel-centered community last year, and so rather than recap that entire study for you today, I thought it would be wise and uh, good for your benefit just to try to whittle it down to one thing. As I think about all the aspects of what go into a, a community, a healthy community, one stands out to me as essential to all the rest. You know what it is? Truth. Honesty. The most essential aspect of any relationship you have is is the element of truth or honesty. Meaning, 
If I, you know, put up some front about who I am, and you fall in love with that guy, because I want you to, that's why I put up the front, and, and you like that guy, and you tell your friends about that guy, you don't actually know me. You don't actually have a real authentic relationship with me. You have a relationship with this version of me that I put out there. And so, the degree to which we could have a real relationship is the degree to which we're willing to be honest, the degree to which we're willing to be seen. And that's what we're going to see in our text today. We all want community. Uh, ironically, few of us probably say we have it the way we want it. And the reason is, is because we don't want to be seen. And the good news of the gospel is that Jesus graciously invites us into a community where we can be seen. And so that's where we're headed today in this text. I just want to talk about our need to be seen, uh, why we don't want to be seen, and how we can be seen. All right, so let's start with our need to be seen. Uh, John 1, it, John in a whole is different than, a lot, than the other three Gospels. And one of the ways it's different is the way that it opens. John opens in this very peculiar way. He, he says, in the beginning. Those are, those are big words. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God, and the Word was with God. He was with God in the beginning. And everything that was made was made through Him. In Him was life, and His life was the light of men. Do you, what does that sound like to you? sounds like the language of Genesis 1, doesn't it? Of creation. And I think one of the things John is trying to say is that, look, in in Genesis there was a creation, but now with Jesus, as he comes on the scene, there is a new creation. And part of what Jesus is doing is restoring the life we were made for in Genesis 1. And that means living in community. In Genesis 1, we see that God himself exists in community. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit interacting and working together in perfect harmony all the time. And when they come to create man, God says, let us make man in our image. Meaning there is something in the blueprint of our soul, just in the design of creation, that we are made to live in community as God himself exists in community. And you see it illustrated in Genesis. Uh, You know, God creates Adam first, and Get, let's them name all the animals, and sadly, none of them do it, do the trick. They don't match him. Now, God didn't do something imperfectly here. God wanted to show Adam his need. And he comes to Adam and says, it's not good for man to be alone. And remember, this is before the sin. This is before the fall. This is in perfect Eden, and something's not good. And what's not good is that man is alone. God doesn't look at Adam and say, no, he's good. He has quiet times every day, and he doesn't sin. I mean, he'll be fine. No, God looks at Adam and says, this isn't good. Adam is not out there going, no, I'm good. I'm good. I got it. He's lonely. There is a God-given divine hole in Adam's life that can only be filled through relationships. I'm not saying they're more important than God, but you look at the narrative, God himself and paradise itself is not the complete picture. There are things in Adam's life that God wants to teach and show that can only be taught and shown through relationships with people, and the same is true for us. No matter how you're wired, introvert, extrovert, socially awkward, socially adept, doesn't matter. There is a deep longing in your soul 
for meaningful community. It's just part of who you are. That longing is an echo of creation. This is what it means to be a family. I was thinking this week, simply put, what it means to be a family is just to have a place where you're totally yourself, and in some weird way, that's okay. None of you are totally yourself here because you suspect that would not be okay. At least once a month in my house, I'll tell Debbie, nobody in our church has a category possibly for what I'm doing right now. Like, they could not imagine it. Just goofy stuff. I mean, one of my favorite things to do when I come home at night is like to unbutton a couple buttons on my shirt and try to, I walk in the kitchen, I'll look over at Debbie, like, how you doing? And I'll, I'll try to pick her up with some cheesy line or something. See, like, most of you don't have a category for me doing that just on a Tuesday night at 10 o'clock. And there's all kinds of things that I'm not even allowed to say that would fit that category. And that's part of what I love about my family is that I, I can just be the goofy me and somehow that's okay. They, they totally know me and, and they're committed to me anyway. That's family. That's what we all want. That longing in you is God-given. And that's what's happening in John 1. Uh, Jesus, the head of a new humanity, is coming on the scene. And look what he does. He gathers a crew. In other words, Jesus, the Son of God, has work to do, and he's not going to do it alone. He calls people to join him in his work. He invites them, come and see, but he also says, come and be seen. Look at uh, John 1 with me. I want you to see, one of the key words in this text is see, saw, seen, look. Uh, John is trying to say something here. Let's read it together. Verse 35. The next day again, John was standing with two of his disciples, and he looked at Jesus as he walked by and said, behold, the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him say this, and they followed Jesus. Jesus turned and saw them following and said to them, What are you seeking? And they said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? He said to them, Come, and you will see. So they came and saw where he was staying, and they stayed with him that day, for it was about the tenth hour. One of the two heard John speak and followed Jesus was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. So he first found his own brother, Simon, and said to him, We found the Messiah. And he brought Peter to Jesus, and Jesus looked at him and said, You are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas. Talk about somebody looking into your soul. The next day, Jesus decided to go to Galilee, and he found Philip and said to him, Follow me. Now, Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, We found him of whom Moses and the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, son of Joseph. Nathanael, skeptical self, said, Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Philip said to him, Come and see. Now, Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and said to him, Behold, an Israelite indeed in whom there is no deceit. And Nathanael said, You don't know me. Nathanael says, How... How did you know me? And Jesus said, Before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Nathanael answered, Rabbi, you're the Son of God. You're the King of Israel. Do you see these dynamic interplays happening here? They think they're coming to check out Jesus, to see what he's all about. And all the while, it is they who are being seen. They're being called into something much more intimate than information. 
It's being called into community. Nathaniel is not changed by what he sees in Jesus. He's changed by what Jesus sees in him. He goes from thinking nothing good can come out of Nazareth to saying, you're, you're the son of God, the king of Israel. Jesus has called us into a community, and for most of us, that means actually this community. Um, one of the things that stands out to me in John 1 and in Genesis 1 is how God forms the community. God brings Eve to Adam. This is your wife. Arranged marriage. Jesus picks the 12. They don't get to pick. They don't all know each other. Some of them do, but you'll see. When you put them together, it's, it's a pretty motley crew. You know what? The same is true for us. Ultimately, we don't get to pick who is in Christ. Right? You, you can try to isolate with people that are like you and people that you like and go to a gospel community that you like, but you know then somebody else is going to come to that that you don't like. Inevitably. There's, every group has that guy. You can't escape him. And I think that's formative and important for us. Uh, the kind of community we need is not strictly a community that is of people that are just like us. Um, I do think we all want some friends that are easy, right? But, but the kind of community that forms us is the kind of community that exposes us. It's when you rub up against people that irritate you or that you irritate or that are just different than you or that are hard to understand, that's when you begin to see your need for Jesus and that's when you begin to look to him. Easy friendships are easy. Community's hard. We need the community that God gives us and we can't grow without it. When we started Providence, the first book we preached out of was the book of Philippians. And one of the things about that book that was so intriguing was just the overwhelming amount of, like, affection and love in that book. Paul loved the Philippian church, and there's so much language of affection. You can tell they love each other. And at some point in the study, you start to go, man, how did they get a community like this? Was, was it because they were all, like, connected in some way previous to this? And then you look in Acts, and you see how the church in Philippi started. It was four people. It was a successful businesswoman. It was a girl who was demon-possessed. It was a Roman jailer, and it was Paul, Pharisee-turned-Christian missionary. All right. Like, I wouldn't call that an affinity group. I wouldn't say that there was anything going on before that they would be all look at each other and be like, yeah, let's, let's do this. These are just the people God gave. And as those people committed to one another and pursued mission together and became disciples in their quest of learning and, and getting to know Jesus, a beautiful community formed out of that, the kind of community that any of us would want. God has put people in your life right now that can see you in ways that you need to be seen. Are you willing to be seen by them? All right. If we're made for community to be seen, then why don't we want to be seen? I mean, deep down, we want to be seen, but in our actual life, we kind of don't want to be seen. Why is that? Well, we can look again at Genesis and John. In Genesis, the perfect community is corrupted by sin. One way to define sin is just to think of it in terms of independence or self-sufficiency, life apart from the presence and the power of God, just taking life into your own hands. This is what Adam and Eve did. When they ate the fruit, it was a move for independence. They wanted to take their life 
into their own hands. And sin not only separated them and us from God, but it also separates us from each other. Uh, When sin entered the world, the first thing that happens is that Adam and Eve realized that they were naked and unashamed. Before, the main descriptor of their relationship, the chief characteristic is that they were naked and unashamed, which means they had, they had no fear of being seen or being exposed. They weren't trying to control each other's perception of them. They weren't trying to manipulate the circumstances. They were totally okay with being seen as they were. And when they sinned, Moses says right away, they knew they were naked and they were ashamed. They didn't want to be seen. Before, their concern was about God and each other, and now they are self-concerned. They're turned in upon self. That's what sin does. It turns us in upon ourselves. Then they heard the sound of God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. I think this was like a daily walk they had with God. But on this day, they hear the sound and they're afraid, and so they go and hide. They'd already tried to make clothes to cover themselves, and I don't think did a very good job. And then they hear God coming, and so they they run and they hide from him. And God calls out to the man, and he said to him, where are you? You see, God wants them to come out. Because even in the midst of their shame, he knows their deep need is to be seen. They come out. Just because they came out doesn't mean they want to be seen. Because as soon as God confronts them about what they've done, they start dodging and and blame-shifting. They don't want to be exposed for who they are. They're there in plain sight trying to hide. And I think that's where many of us find ourselves, in plain sight trying to hide. Meaning, we're not alone. We have all kinds of relationships and networks, but we are largely unknown keeping people close enough to enjoy and to have a good time, but distant enough to impress, I think is where we find ourselves. I was talking to Kaysen this week, and he was saying that uh, one of his fears is going to a comedy show, like a small-time comedy show, because in those, sometimes somebody from the audience will be called up onto stage, and he was like, I don't want to be called up onto stage. I was like, well, why not? It's like a comedy show. I was like, yeah, but I was like, you don't want to look stupid. He's like, yeah, I definitely do not want to look stupid. Because if you get caught up on stage in a comedy show, then you're guaranteed that the comedy is you. It's going to be your foolishness is what people will be laughing at. And he was like, yeah, I just, I do not ever want to get in that situation. And then like a moment goes by in classic Cason style. And then he says, I wonder if people feel that way about church. Like if the reason people don't want to engage in community is for fear of being exposed. And so they just kind of stay on the margins, close enough to enjoy, distant enough to impress. There are lots of reasons that we don't want to be seen. They're simple. You know what they are. Fear of rejection. Fear of consequence. Like we don't want to be accountable to people for what we do. Some, some of you don't want to be seen because you know that your life is such a mess, and if people see it, they're going to feel burdened by it, and they're going to have to get involved and help you, and you just don't want to put them out in that way. And I know that feels really humble, but actually it's really prideful. It's the heart of self-reliance and self-sufficiency to say, I, I'll just take care of it myself, when God has given you a community to help. 
Some of you are just trying to build some kind of reputation of importance, and so you want to control what people see. There's all kinds of reasons we don't want to be seen. For Adam and Eve, I suspect it was the fear of the unknown. I mean, this was new territory for them. What, what would God do to them? How would he respond? If, if people saw the real you, don't you have that question? What, how would they respond? What would they do with me? And so we hide. Just like Adam and Eve, we're really good at avoiding and blame shifting. Those, I think, are the two, and, and defensiveness. Those are the top three. But there's more subtle things, too. We hide behind humor. We hide behind achievement. We hide behind silence and spin. We're hiding all the time. We hide behind uh, our busyness, serving. Some of you are so good at serving, but really it's just an excuse to get out of the conversation so that you don't have to engage in community. But we need you to serve. So keep doing that, but repent and work it out as, as you go. Can you see how all the ways you're hiding are keeping your relationship shallow and keeping you from growing in the ways that God wants you to grow? What happens in, in when we hide is we begin to view relationships functionally instead of formatively. Like God has put people in your life to form you spiritually, to grow you up and mature you. And so when we have that mindset, we can receive all the people in our life as gifts from God to form us. But because we don't want to be seen, we begin to treat relationships functionally. Meaning, uh, when God's at the center, we're getting formed. But when I have a functional view, I put myself at the center of my relationships. And so when, I, when I'm at the center of my relationships, then every conflict is polarizing. It's always me versus you. But when God's at the center of the relationship, then it's not me versus you. It's us against sin, trying to be reconciled to one another. When I'm at the center of my relationships, then any time somebody asks me to do something that I don't want to do, it always feels like a cost. It always feels like an expense of some time or energy. And I may do it just to do the right thing, but I'll do it begrudgingly and with some expectation of repayment. I just begin to think of relationships in economic terms when I think of them functionally. But when God's at the center, I see those opportunities as opportunities to deny myself and experience the joy of serving others. C.S. Lewis said that the essence of friendship is not to look at each other, but to look at something in common. Friendship happens because of what you are in love with and and with people who are in love with the same thing. Friendship has to be about something, Lewis says. And I'm saying that when friendship is about me, it'll be shallow. But if God's at the center and we're both pursuing Him, then that pursuit draws us together in really profound ways and draws a diverse people together in really profound ways that are so formative and healthy for a church. And so let me just ask you, are your friendships about you or about God? The answer is both. And I just think God is asking us to identify those ways in which we put ourselves at the center of some situation and seek repentance so that we might make our relationships about God. All right, last thing. We kind of don't want to be seen, but, but we really do. And so how can we be? How does the gospel enable us to be seen? This is what Jesus came to do, to deliver us from the darkness of self-concern into the kingdom of light. 
One of my favorite passages is by John, but it's in a different letter. It's in 1 John. And he says, God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. And he said, if we walk in the light, meaning if we walk in truth and honesty, we're seen and we see others, if we walk in that way, you know what happens? He says, we have fellowship with one another, real community, genuine relationship, and the blood of Jesus cleanses us from all unrighteousness. And so, look, if you want to be free of sin in your life and you want to have friendships, real friendships, walk in the light. That's what Jesus is inviting them and us to do. It's what God was inviting Adam and Eve to do. Adam and Eve tried to cover their nakedness, which I guess is a normal thing to do. But ultimately, God makes clothes for them and covers them. He sacrifices an animal and makes clothes for them out of animal skins. And it's a sign that points us to the ultimate sacrifice that will happen with Jesus and how we really need to be covered with Jesus' righteousness and not anything that we make of our own. Because we're always trying to cover all the time. We're always putting up a front to control what people think about us. We're always pretending and performing so that people will like us. But in actuality, it, it drives us further from the kind of relationships that we want, doesn't it? Because if I, again, put up a front that you like, deep down I know that's not the real me, and I even feel more lonely than I did before. This is just, we're always trying to cover. Because we need a cover. But the cover we need isn't one that we can make ourselves. It's one that we must receive from God. And what is that cover? This is the gospel. Jesus took our shame upon himself. On the cross, Jesus is literally hung naked. His clothes are stripped from him. He's mocked. He's ridiculed. He's humiliated. He's abused. All of that in our place. So that through his nakedness, we could be clothed with righteousness. If you believe in Jesus, you're in him. You are clothed clothed with the garments of righteousness. Do you know what that means? It means that you stand before God with no fear and no shame. He sees deep into your soul every part, and he doesn't reject you. He welcomes you in his beloved son, Jesus. When you take that in, I mean, when you know that kind of love, it frees you. It gives you the courage to be seen by others because you don't have anything left to prove to anybody. This is what happens to Peter. Look at verse 40. One of the two who heard John speak and followed Jesus was Andrew, and Andrew is Simon Peter's brother. He first found his own brother Simon and said to him, We found the Messiah. And he brought Simon to Jesus, and Jesus looked at him and said, You're Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which means Peter. This, this scene is uh, overwhelming to me. It is such grace that he covers Peter with. He names him. Up front, before Peter had ever done a thing, Jesus said, you're going to be Peter, which means the rock. You're going to be the rock, man. And you look at Peter's life over the next three years, and you know he's not that. Like, he's everything but that. He's not immovable and reliable. He's utterly independent and self-sufficient. 
He's rash and foolish. Peter's the guy that's always charging the hill, but he forgot to ask which hill he's supposed to charge. Always. It's like, no, you're not a rock. You're kind of a pain. I think Jesus is tapping into something. I think he's tapping into the kind of person that Peter longs to be deep down, the kind of person God made him to be. And Jesus is saying, you know what? I see it. And I'm going to declare it today. That's who I'm calling you. And then I'm going to form it in you over time. That's grace. God declares you righteous by faith in Christ, and then he forms you in righteousness over time. And the primary context that we are formed in, and the primary context of Peter's discipleship, is community. That's how we know about all Peter's failures, because his buddies took great pleasure in writing it all down for eternity to read. He's up and down. He fails all the time. He's jockeying for position amongst the disciples to try to be first place in Jesus' mind. He just doesn't get it. Jesus knew that ahead of time, and he said, that, I see who God made you to be, and that's who I'm going to make you. It's going to take a little time with you, especially. Peter only gets one line in the story, in the DNA scene. But everybody that John's writing this, this book to, uh, dozens of years later, they all know who Peter is. He's the rock. He's the leader of the early church. And I think John gives him this line to say, he wasn't always Peter. Once he was Simon. This is why Jesus invites us in. He wants us to be seen and known in ways that radically change us, like at the the level of our identity, so that at the level of our actual life, we really can experience the kind of community that he's called us into. A gospel community gives us grace, grace to work out our identity, our family identity together over time. But it also gives us truth truth about who we are, good and bad, so that we can be seen in ways that change us. Let me just close with this. Uh, I want to be practical, because I'm usually not, but uh, if, you're, if you're thinking to yourself, okay, what do we do? How do, wh- how do we begin to engage uh, um, practices that will help us be seen? Let me give you three quick ones, and again, these are the three that I have found over 20 years of ministry to be the most fruitful. All right, the first one is this, faithful presence just means like be there. Be here. Be in your gospel communities. Be with friends. Don't be isolated. Faithfully be present with God's people. You can't be seen if you're not around. And more than that, there's just something about the gathering of God's people in which God speaks grace and truth into our lives in ways that he doesn't when you're just out alone. I'm not saying he doesn't speak to you alone. I'm just saying he also, in unique ways, speaks to us when we're with his people. Secondly, uh, confession. Confess your sins. This is one of those things that we think we do that we just don't do. And we certainly don't do as much as we have opportunity to do. Confess your sins to God. Make a practice of confessing to God. I write mine out in a moleskin because I know I won't do it if I don't do that. But more than that, confess your sins to each other. James says there's so much healing to be experienced if we would just confess our sins to each other. And when John talks about walking in the light, that's part of what he's talking about, is confessing our sins to one another. The reason you don't want to do that is because you don't want to be seen. You're trying to put up some front. The surest way to cut through the front is just to confess your sins to one another. 
And when you do, you will experience so much grace in your life. Finally, deal with conflict. That doesn't mean gossip about conflict. Right? That doesn't mean even just pray about conflict, although you should do that. It means deal with conflict. If you perceive somebody feels some way about you or you heard they said something about you, our tendency is to just build up a whole belief system about that person and what we think they did. And do you know how, how that just ruins a community? Because we're all doing that. Jesus said, look, if, if, if somebody has something against you, or even if you just heard somebody has something against you, it's so serious that you should leave your gift at the altar and you should go be reconciled to that person before you would gather with God's people in worship. I know it's hard to do, and I know we don't want to like be, you know, pointing out every little thing that happens, but just the way that I practice it, look, if something comes to my mind, I'll try to look over it in grace, but if it keeps coming back, if I just keep replaying tapes about the same situation or the same person, that's my clue. Like, man, I got to go see what's going on there. I got to see what's really true, own up to my sin, confront whatever sin needs to be confronted, and seek God together. That's the kind of community you want. You, You can't have any of that unless you're willing to be seen. And so to all who want to follow Jesus today, his invitation to you is to come and see and come and be seen. Let me pray. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Providence Church. For more resources and info, visit us online at www.providenceaustin.com.